We're in Ephesians 6 tonight. Ephesians 6 and verse 17. We have not uh, finished the armor of God and we want to do that. And so uh, we're on near the end of the armor of God that we're to put on. And we want to talk tonight about the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6 and verse 17 is the text. And the Bible says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So two things to take there. We'll look at one of those to the helmet of salvation tonight. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that we can open the word together and be instructed from it. And I especially thank you for the armor of God. You've you've warned us of our adversary, the devil, and his desire is seeking for whom he may devour And uh, we have been reminded to war a good warfare. And uh, we thank you that you've equipped us for it as well. I pray that all of us would take the whole armor of God, that we wouldn't take it piece by piece, but the whole thing, that we would diligently maintain our, our armor, make sure that it's securely in place, at all times, and be constantly vigilant against our adversary. And I pray, Lord, that you would show yourself mighty as we emerge victorious from the onslaught, uh, from the wiles of the devil, and the different ways that he is constantly trying to trip us up. I pray that we would overcome him, that he would be defeated And that he would also be humiliated, not only because you have trounced him on the cross, but because of this trouncing, he is incapable of defeating such a weak foe as ourselves, though he is very mighty. And he's incapable of it because you've equipped us against him. I pray that we would have confidence in that. Um, and trust you, and that uh, we would uh, rightly resist the devil. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My kids and I were on a bike ride along the Ogden River um, trails a number of years ago. The kids were all smaller. And uh, we, as we were riding, a guy was riding towards us, and um, he stopped in the middle of the trail, started talking to the couple of my kids that were out front waited for the whole family to get there. And then he told us a story. He told us about a friend of his um, who was riding down the trail in that same area where we were. And as he was riding along, not, uh, not speeding, not going fast, but a little girl on her bike swerved in front of him. He jammed on his brakes to miss her and uh, hit something, somehow ended up flying over his um, handlebars. And um, the brain trauma from hitting his head caused his brain to swell, and he died. And the man was telling us this, and of course I'm thinking to myself, thanks, buddy. (laughs) You know, making our family outing all the better um, with it, but... He explained why. He said, my friend wasn't wearing a helmet. I never wore a helmet. He said, your kids aren't wearing a helmet. He said, 
But it wasn't a serious accident that killed him. It was really, you would think you'd survive, but just the way he hit his head. And he said, the uh, doctor said, if he just would have been wearing a helmet. Well, that was a very sobering thing. We went out and bought helmets for our kids after that. Uh, but it's a reminder to us also that the two vital, the most vital parts of your body, the chest where your internal organs are in the head, God intentionally provides armor for their protection and describes that armor and teaches us to take it on ourselves and to keep it in good repair. <clears throat> We're coming near the end of that list of pieces of armor that make up the panoply, the, the whole armor of God. Before we join the fray, the apostle throws in two more pieces that we will need. The grammar gives the sense that Paul is saying, before you go, grab your helmet, grab your sword. And we'll get to the sword. But we're commanded to put on the whole armor of God, the panoply of God, our loins girt about with truth, what ties together all these uh, pieces of armor and keeps them securely in place is the truth. The truth of God's word held by a sincere believer without anything phony or fake, but held sincerely by us. The truth of scripture held in sincerity by the believer is what keeps the armor in place. And having on the breastplate of righteousness, as I said, what protects the heart, the vital organs of your body is this not imputed righteousness, which is justification, but imparted righteousness, the work of sanctification, the righteousness that is produced in us as Christ is formed in us. So as we strive to live according to the word of God, that effort that we're making and the righteousness that results from that as Christ is formed in you protects your heart, protects your vital organs against the snares and the wiles and the, 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 the fiery darts of the wicked one. Having also our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. <clears throat> Shoes for the feet so that you can advance without damaging your feet. A soldier uh, marches on his feet and he needs protection for his feet. The protection for your feet is not so much protection against the enemy as it is protection against the hardship of the trail, the hardship of the, <clears throat> the fields where you engage in battle. And this, uh, the shoes for your feet consists of the preparation of the gospel of peace, a deep spiritual understanding of this gospel of peace that gives you sure footing against all of Satan's attacks. And above all, taking the shield of faith. That is, <clears throat> the shield of faith goes outside of and, and is protection for your armor itself as well as for yourself. The shield of faith, faith that takes hold of God's promises, that takes God at his word, that rests in his promises, that believes to the saving of his soul 
and appropriates all the grace that God provides for us to himself, to my particular needs, takes it. And now tonight we come to the helmet of salvation. Now the helmet of a Roman soldier was made to be both protective and decorative as well. The Roman soldier was well-dressed, uh, and he, <clears throat> he took pride in his, in his armor, in his uniform, as he went into battle. And that helmet was an important, a significant part of that armor. The helmet was made of tough metal, bronze or iron. It was lined with felt or sponge of some kind so that the weight of it would be bearable on his head. It was made to fit snugly on his head so that only a direct hit from an axe or from a hammer could damage it. The Roman soldier also liked to decorate his helmet and often would give it a magnificent look on his head because it was part of his identity as well. Now, I want you to notice something that's unique about these last two pieces of armor described in verse 17. The other pieces are all described with participles that uh, you are to stand, therefore, having. So, so this is the way you stand. You stand having your loins girt about with the truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and so on, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. So these are describing the way that you stand. The participle is, acts as a kind of adjective right here. <clears throat> but in And in verse 16 also, the same idea, taking the shield of faith is part of how you are standing. But now Paul shifts in verse 17. And for the first time in this list of armor, Paul gives a command here. Take the helmet of salvation. He uses an imperative verb to command you to take this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. <clears throat> but the word take in verse 17 means take in the sense of receiving it, accepting it, taking hold of it, grasping it for yourself. The, the, the Greek here uses the middle voice, which can be an intensive to take it yourself but also can be a, a direct middle is, is more the idea of taking it for yourself here. So you're, you are commanded to take this, and this is for you. This is for your safety. This is for your security, your protection. And the idea here is grab your helmet and let's go. This is the last thing that the soldier would grab. The last thing he would put on, often he would carry it into battle because they were heavy and uncomfortable to wear, <clears throat> but remember, we're already in battle, so take it and put it on right here. <clears throat> blow to the head can be deadly, and you can't be prepared for when that blow might land. Most of the time, I don't know if, if it's been your experience, but I have found that the hardest knocks I've gotten on the noggin came by surprise. I wasn't expecting it. You know, I was digging in my trunk, and the trunk fell. I don't know how it fell, but it fell right on my head uh, or something along those lines. I bang my head. And if you're like me, there's nothing makes me angrier faster than banging my head. 
And it makes me mad at everyone around me like it's their fault. I don't know why that is. I can't really explain it, but uh, you ask my kids uh, and they'll tell you. So grab your helmet, be prepared. That's the idea here. Because typically a knock to the noggin is coming from a blind spot. You're not going to see it coming. That's If you could see it coming, you could keep the uh, helmet by your side and just slap it on right before it comes. You know, kind of like riding your bike. If you could see when you were about to fall off your bike, you could slap your helmet on and then you could fall and then you wouldn't have to wear that thing all the time. But there's a reason why you wear it the whole time you're biking in case you fall off. All right, so let's try to get to the importance of this piece of armor. First of all, let's consider what it is. What exactly is this helmet of salvation? Now notice, first of all, that the helmet is salvation, that your salvation is the helmet for your head, your salvation, which you have, I trust, received from our Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation that is freely offered to you in the gospel by the grace of God. So this gospel consists of the historic event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who the Bible tells us died for our sins. Our sins were laid on Jesus Christ so that he was, in a sense, held responsible. He was, God dealt with Jesus as if he had been the one to commit those sins. He dealt with Jesus for our sins. And dealing with Jesus for our sins required that God be just and cause Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. And so God, in his sovereign plan for our salvation, God sent Jesus to be the savior of the world that required Jesus to bear our sins and his own body on the cross and then When Jesus was bearing our sins, God determined to exercise justice against our sin, to punish sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the agony that Jesus suffered was agony that rightly belonged to me, rightly belonged to you, rightly belonged to every sinner. It was our agony. We should have suffered it ourselves, but Jesus suffered In our place, the death that he died should have been our death. But Jesus died that death for us on our behalf. And he did that in order to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus died our death, satisfied God's demands for justice. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave. Only Jesus could do that. No man could do it. If we died for our sin, we would stay dead for eternity. But Jesus, because he was the Lamb of God without blemish and without spot, because the sins were not actually his, because he was not in reality responsible for those sins because he did not commit them. Therefore, Jesus could die our death and could triumph over death, which is exactly what he did in the grave when he rose from the grave on the third day. Jesus 
in rising from the dead demonstrated that he had, when he said on the cross it is finished, he demonstrated that it was in fact finished. The debt of sin was paid in full. There was no more payment to be made. Jesus had satisfied God's demands for justice. And on his behalf, for his sake, he extends the gift of salvation to those who come to him by faith, repenting of their sin, coming to him to receive his gift of grace. And the Bible is telling you that when you receive that gift of grace, now there are many, many blessings and benefits that come to us by means of the salvation that God gives us. We could name them off. We are reconciled to God. We are pardoned for our sin. Our enmity between, the enmity between us and God is removed, eliminated, gone, so that we can have direct fellowship with God, be in relationship with God. He gives us peace. He gives us hope. He gives us a family relationship. We are adopted. We are, we are sons and daughters, heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Part of the family of God. All of these blessings and more. But the one that we're looking at tonight is the protection that your salvation provides for you for your head. The, your salvation is a helmet for your head. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and 8, verse 8, Paul describes this helmet a, a little bit differently. He adds to it. He doesn't call it salvation, but rather the hope of salvation. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. Salvation, of course, being the object of that hope so that the believer's hopes all hang on the salvation that is freely offered us from God. The shield of faith consists of justifying faith. So just reviewing a little bit the different pieces of armor, the breastplate of righteousness is not justification, but rather sanctification, imparted righteousness, the righteousness that God is producing in us as we live according to the word of God, as Christ is formed in us. The shield is the shield of faith, which has more to do with justification, um, that the shield is that faith that lays hold of the promises of God, particularly regarding our salvation, that we are resting in Christ, trusting in him to bring us safely home. We have hanged our hope on the promises of God in Scripture. Now, the helmet focuses particularly on that hope of salvation. The hope of salvation, which we embrace by faith, protects the head from the wiles of the devil. Now, this hope is a sure thing. It is a lively hope, the Bible calls it. So it's, it's not a, you know, 
Um, are you going to win the lottery? Man, I hope so. You're going to get that job? Boy, I hope so. But I'm not sure. It is not an uncertain hope. This hope is such a lively thing. And when faith lays hold on it, it becomes a certainty for us. The certainty is not just a hope that when we die, we'll discover that we did win the lottery, the celestial lottery. But in fact, it is an anticipation that the things that God has prepared for us, remember the eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that trust in him. This hope of salvation is the eager anticipation that is going to be way better than what we ever imagined. That, that the riches, the splendor, the joy of heaven is so much better than anything, anything that we could ever hope to enjoy here on earth. So much better that I, like Jesus said in the parables, I'll sell everything I have in order to have that right there. Sell it, sell it all to have that. That all the riches of this earth are like pennies in a piggy bank compared to the splendor of heaven. This hope of salvation is a hope that makes us long for the goodness that God has prepared for us. So then the salvation that provides a helmet for our head <clears throat> consists of both the salvation we have already received by faith in Christ and also the salvation that is waiting for us in heaven. It is both present salvation and full salvation. Full salvation. And, and let me just remind you that yes, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've come to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus as he's presented in the gospel, then you have salvation. But you don't have all of it yet that you will have. We still have earthly bodies. We still suffer pain, right? Sorrow, loss, etc. We are saved now and this protects our head. Because by saving us, God has already, the moment that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, in that moment, you are immediately delivered from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And God immediately begins the work of delivering you, the process of delivering you from the presence of sin. But there awaits for us a coming day a full salvation. Full salvation, which includes two things, really. Resurrection glory and Christ-likeness. <clears throat> 
Listen to Romans 8 on this. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Okay, so that's the idea of full salvation delivered out of the corruption of this body. Now that corruption is moral, spiritual, physical corruption. We are delivered out of that corruption or we will be delivered out of the corruption of this vile body of ours into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For that a man seeth, what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. That's the hope of salvation that we're talking about. The, the, the salvation that we don't see yet, but that we patiently wait for. Here's the word. Expectantly. Expectantly. We're expecting it to come. We're looking forward to it. And it is this hope. Can I use it? This phrase. This confident anticipation. Of this full salvation. The day when we are finally. Ultimately. Saved. Set free. It is that confident expectation that we have now as an expectation, as a hope, but will one day receive fully. That is what protects the head from the wiles of the devil. Right there. That protects your head. Now, we have in earnest already a down payment that we've received of this inheritance. God has already given us uh, an earnest payment to show that he means business, that he will pay in full. This is an assurance God has given to the believer that the inheritance will be ours. And the assurance is the Holy Spirit who indwells you. When you receive Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He indwells you as a believer, because the spirit indwells us, we have this added assurance that the rest of the inheritance will be ours, will be paid. It won't be squirreled away. It won't be it won't be um, given away to someone else. But there is inheritance for all of us. And this gives us an expectation that all the good things God has promised will be ours. They will be. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise. Not one word. It encourages us then to wait for it patiently. And this protects our head. Because 
here's what Satan wants to do. He wants to bang you on the head and leave it to leave your head to ring. You had a good, you know, you had your bell rung. There's a reason they call it that. The sirens go off in your head and in your ears, right? And it just turns you back. When I, I was in high school wrestling and we were in a practice and my um, my wrestling partner, who was also my best friend, but not at that moment, and <clears throat> the whistle blew and we were coached. When that whistle blew, you took a shot. And I took a shot and he took a shot and we collided head to head. Bam! So hard we both fell backwards and he was going, ah! And I was going, ah! And our coach was going, get up and wrestle! And so we did. But it hurt. And I'm telling you, when you get your bell rung, you don't feel like getting up and wrestling. You don't feel like doing anything except going and laying down, curling up in the fetal position and sucking your thumb for a little while. And the devil knows that. And he wants to give you a good knock to your head. Because he wants to turn you back. Now, something I learned, because I, you know, I don't, when we were young, we didn't get concussions. And now everybody gets them all the time. It's just the, the weakness of this generation. I'm kidding. <clears throat> well, we just know a little more about it now. But, um, but my son Isaac's gotten two concussions in wrestling. And one of the things that um, we discovered with that is that a concussion makes you very emotional. And, um, and uh, like he was every little thing during that time. And Satan knows that. Makes you, in a sense, a little bit wimpy. A little timid. Afraid to do anything here. <clears throat> And that's why it is necessary that our heads be protected. And the reason why God has given us for the protection of our heads, this hope of salvation. So the second thing I want to consider here, why do we need this? We need this helmet because of the suffering we are called to endure. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's God's promise to you. Jesus said, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Now, cross, the cross was never designed to magnify its victim. It lifts up its victim, but not in order to exalt the victim. And Jesus said, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever Shall, will lose his life for my sake, shall find it. In 1 Thessalonians 3, in verse 3, the Apostle Paul said that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. 
In 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, Peter said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now this is what the Bible tells us. We will suffer. And understand this. The helmet of salvation was not designed to prevent you from suffering. The helmet of salvation was designed because God knows that you will suffer. And you need protection, spiritual protection for your head because you will suffer. You will suffer. In a way, the helmet invites suffering. Just as in, in Israel, in the New Testament time, a Roman soldier, they handed out lots of abuse, but they also were at the receiving end of a lot of abuse. Wearing that uniform marked them as an enemy to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel responded like they were an enemy. And wearing that helmet of salvation makes you a target for the enemy. He aims at you. <clears throat> the helmet protects the head not from suffering, but from sin. Suffering is not your enemy. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love him, right? And we know that God uses refining fire to, to refine us, to make us into what he wants us to be. We know that. Sin is the danger. And when we're suffering, sin becomes very alluring to us as well. We need this protection because temptation is always aimed at the head. <clears throat> Quite often it's aimed at the glands. The definition I've always remembered of temptation, something I learned back when I was assistant pastor here, youth pastor, Temptation is a tantalizing opportunity to do wrong. It isn't temptation if it isn't tantalizing. If it isn't something that you want to do, something that is luring to you. It isn't temptation if there's no opportunity for you to do it. And... It isn't temptation if it does not involve wrongdoing. But those three come together, tantalizing opportunity to do wrong, to form temptation. Surely you recognize then the way temptation works on your head, because it's, what, is, what, what are the, um, the three lusts that John describes? the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
And don't they all appeal to the mind? You see it, that it's desirable. Your mind dwells on it and desires it. The pride of life, you think that it makes you sophisticated. You think that it, it makes you a better person to do it. You look for approval and applause and you think that doing that sin, yielding to that temptation will give you that. Temptation appeals to the mind. It appeals to our desires. It is tantalizing. It's desirable. It appeals to our reason. We rationalize about it. We justify it. We excuse it. We reason that it's good for us to do this. We have the opportunity and we should take that opportunity. And so God designed this helmet as a defense against that. To defend us from temptation, lest we be tempted when we are drawn away of our own lusts and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Notice what James says next. Do not err, my beloved brother. Erring would be an error in judgment. And so the helmet of salvation is designed to defend us from sin at the place where we are most vulnerable. Now these are the things that Satan aims at our heads. Doubts and fears, temptations, and deceits. Those things that Satan uses to lure us, to draw us away, And let me say that Satan knows how to attack when you are suffering. Especially when you're suffering. He, in fact, tries to bring suffering into your life in hopes that he can snare you. We see that in the most direct passage in Scripture where we see Satan really laying out his strategy with the saints. In the case of Job, he said, take away all his prosperity and all of his luxuries and he'll curse you to your face. Satan believed that. He believed that. And he believes that with us as well. See, this is how he works. If he can get you to feel deprived, to feel discontent with your circumstances. Especially, especially if you've been a good soldier. You've been diligent in your pursuit of God. You've been dedicated to the work of the ministry. You've been faithful to follow Christ. You've sacrificed. You've given. You've bled. You've sweated. You've sown in tears. And what do you have to show for it? Now Satan loves to show you what you don't have to show for it. To point out all the things that you're missing. And to say, to suggest to you, how could it hurt? Just one little thing. Just one little time. 
God doesn't pay you in kind. You pour your life into these things. You give yourself. You're committed. You're faithful. You're dedicated. And what do you have to show for? You can't just enjoy one little indulgence of the flesh for a little bit. That's what Satan says. Look at your reward for all of your suffering. You just get more suffering, scorn. People despise you. You fail in the things that you're trying to achieve. <clears throat> Satan whispers in your ear that your king is neglecting you, is slighting you, takes you for granted. If you don't have the hope of salvation fi fixed firmly on your head, these suggestions will make you consider a disloyal act to the Lord. Now this is what William Gurnall says in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. It's hard to draw him into any treasonable practice against his prince who is both well satisfied of his favor at present and stands also on the stairs of hope, expecting assuredly to be called up within a while to the highest preferment that the court can afford or his king give. No, the weapons of rebellion and treason are usually forged and fashioned in discontent's shop. When subjects take themselves to be neglected and slighted by their prince, think that their preferments are now at an end and that they must look for no great favors more to come from him. This softens them to receive every impression of disloyalty that enemy, any enemy to the king shall attempt to stamp them withal. This is what Satan is trying to do with us. Understand that. He knows, he knows that much suffering is involved in following Christ. He knows that. He knows that things are not going to go as planned that you're not going to see the visible results that you had hoped to see, that you're not going to get to rejoice in all the successes that you had hoped to rejoice in, that you are not, you're going to be frustrated at times. And he exploits that in order to just, look, he, he really hasn't changed his strategy all that much. He's just perfected his methods over the years. But from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, what did Satan do? He went to Adam and Eve and he tried to just sow seeds of discontentment with what God had given them, right? So that when he did that, when he got them to be discontent and to feel like they were being deprived, then he could suggest to them a way to correct that. <clears throat> and so the helmet of salvation protects your head by getting you, by teaching you to be content in Jesus Christ. 
to see that the sufferings of this present world are just temporary. Temporary. And that there is waiting for you in heaven a, a fabulous, rich inheritance, reward. As you get to enjoy God forever in the splendors of the place he's prepared for you. How did Moses choose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season? How did he do it? Hebrews 11 tells us, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And what did James say to all of us who suffer? My brethren, he said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Understand what James is saying right there. The patience that's produced when we endure temptation is of so much greater value than any sin that we might enjoy in this life. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. You see how this is going? This is the helmet of salvation right here. And so James, in, the, in <clears throat> discussing in the context of this suffering that we're in, to endure, reminds us, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then he says this, every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And so the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation teaches you not to let yourself feel deprived, but in fact to focus on the blessings and the graces and the rich treasure of goodness that God pours out on you every day to say it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his mercies fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Do you see how the vision of good things that God has prepared for us guards our heads against the temptations that come from bad things that happen to us? There's a third thing. We should consider, how do we wear this helmet of salvation? Before we consider the ways that we wear the helmet, please consider the importance of defense in this warfare. The, the, the armor that God has given us is designed for defense, not for offense. Because all of our weapons tell us that our warfare against the wiles of the devil is mainly a defensive battle. Here, here's the thing. we God has given us a treasure of his grace. And 
Our job is to guard that and keep it. Keep Satan from getting it because Satan wants to lure you away from it in some way so that he can plunder it, so that he can steal it. We overcome the devil when we are not overcome by the devil. And this is the amazing thing. We will all be amazed in the last day. We stand before God to think, and especially, I think, when we catch a fuller view, a fuller glimpse of the power of Satan and what a frightening enemy he is. And to think that we were able to overcome that. That's how Satan is overcome. In fact, that's what makes us more than conquerors. That Satan is not able to plunder the spiritual blessings that God has given to us in heavenly places in Christ. And so William Gurnall reminds us that the Christian overcomes his enemy when he himself is not overcome by him. He wins the day when he doth not lose his grace, his work being rather to keep what is his own than to get what is his enemy's. We're not trying to get anything from Satan. All right? We're trying to keep what has been given to us. Now, the Bible warns us of the way Satan attempts to rob us of the treasures of God's grace. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So Satan is trying through philosophy that is vain deceit, he is trying to rob you of this inheritance in Christ. And the best way to guard against this vain, deceitful philosophy of the world is by wearing the helmet of the hope of salvation, of making sure that it is securely fitted to your head. How do we do this? Well, it's, it's really like with all these, this armor, and, and the point is we don't have to craft the armor. We don't have to make the armor. God has made it for us. He has given Keep it in good repair. Here's how you keep the helmet in good repair. Fill your mind with the truth of the gospel. Hunger for it. Don't, don't come to a point where you say, you know, I kind of know the gospel now. I don't think I need to learn any more about that. Look, I, I first prayed to receive Christ when I was five years old. My mom had been teaching me the gospel for all the years leading up to that. That's more than 10 years ago. I am still learning about the gospel. It's a delight. Be delighted by it. Hunger for it. Desire to know it more and more. Fill your mind with the truth of the gospel. Rest your mind in the hope of the gospel. Let that be your hope. And rest in it securely. And think scripturally about what you're doing. Colossians 2 says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Was it not by faith? Simply faith, you know, faith not being like the claw that grabs, but the hand that receives. <clears throat> Was the gospel not a gift of God's grace? Was it not received by faith? And when you received it, didn't receiving the gospel, receiving Christ, didn't that just involve the very simple thing of taking God at his word, believing what he said in the word of God was true and that it applied to you? Isn't that it? That's the simplicity of the gospel right there. Did you not look in the word desiring to see everything that God has prepared for you, everything that God has given you? Isn't that why we look in the word of God? Not because we demand that God prove himself to us constantly, but because we believe that everything in the Bible is for us and we want to see what is there for us. And when you see it in the word, don't you believe it and embrace it? And rejoice in it? Now, isn't that the point of Hebrews 11? When Hebrews 11 says this, that these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heaven. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. This, this is what the Bible is describing to you over and over, that we take God at his word, we, even though I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Yet, we see it. But we don't see it, see it. And we don't need someone to die on the operating table and come back and tell us about it. But by faith, we see what God has told us in his word. That's enough right there. What he said in his word. And we fix our gaze on that and we look for it and look. If you're to put on the whole armor of God. You must not be content with the mere reading of scripture. Just reading it. Read it. Yes. But work to see the glory and goodness of all that heavenly promise everywhere written in there. This Bible is God's promissory note to you. Written out in detail, written large. God telling you, this is what I have for you, and this is what I have for you. I read, I think it's A.J. Ironside wrote a commentary on the Song of Solomon, and he described the love story in the Song of Solomon this way. As if there was a, a prince 
who rode through a village and met a, you know, a, a village girl and fell in love with her and went to her father and requested her hand in marriage and promised to return to take her as his wife and then rode off to prepare for their marriage. And she didn't know when he was coming and she looked for him and she listened for his voice because she was in love too. And she would hear the uh, uh, sound of horses coming down and she would rush to the window to see if it was him and it wasn't him. And she would wake up at night dreaming that he had come and he had not come. And she was disappointed over and over again. And then one day, the trumpet sounded and the great white horse came riding in and her man had come to take her away. Now, all this time, she had been expecting him to come for her. And he finally came. And that's the idea of the hope of salvation. That if you take it this way, we are the bride of Christ. And our Lord and Savior has promised that he is coming for us. And he's going to take us to the place he's prepared for us. We fix it in our mind's eye. When we read in Scripture, we read what he left behind for us to assure us of what he's prepared for us and that he is preparing it for us. We fix it in our eyes so that the vision consumes our thoughts, fills our hearts with joy and delight and wonder and expectation. And we learn then to think the way he thinks to think his thoughts after him so that we're not caught up in the snares and the traps and the deceits that Satan has laid before us. And we recognize, we learn to recognize temptation for the fraud that it really is, for the emptiness that it really is, and all the things that Satan offers to you in order to pull you away from the Lord is just phony and fake and empty as an empty card box. And we learn then to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when you're a tempted of the heavenly glory. So how do we use this helmet of salvation? Well, <clears throat> it's important here to remember, as the man said, to remember the difference between a helmet and head. Right? The head does not protect the helmet. The helmet protects the head. Even so, we don't aim to keep our salvation. Our salvation keeps us. We don't aim to keep our joy, but to remember that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We don't labor to keep our peace, but rather to be kept by the peace of God, which passeth understanding for the promises that this is the peace that will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So in other words, we rely on the wealth of God's grace that he's given to us. Your head doesn't protect the helmet. The helmet protects your head. You won't need to grow fingers on your head to keep the helmet on. Strap it in place and let it do its work. 
Roman soldier <clears throat> waited to put his helmet on until it was time for battle. But we have to remember that we're always at war. And we must wear the helmet then at all times. Then remember that hope of salvation. Let that hope protect your head. When temptation comes, remember what you have to look forward to. Don't risk then. Don't risk selling your birthright for a bowl of pottage. <clears throat> Remember that the heavenly blessing, the riches of Christ in heaven, are so much better than any temptation that Satan might try to lure us with. When we fall into sin, remember that we're pardoned and forgiven. That there's no ground for despair. Because we look forward to and expect full salvation when our bodies will be redeemed. When Satan comes to deceive, fill your mind with the truth of the gospel. Better yet, don't wait for his deceptions. Fill your mind with the truth of the gospel. Meditate on these things. That is the work of taking the helmet of salvation. Notice what Hebrews 6 says. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable, that is unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that's set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that which within the veil. Now this is what the apostle is setting before you, this strong consolation we have fled to Christ for the hope set before us. And not to repeat myself, but remember that the ship is not trying to hold on to the anchor. The anchor holds on to the ship. Let your hope of salvation keep your heart and mind and the temptations and allurements of Satan will not be very alluring to you at all. Because you see something that's so much better. So much better.